Ours is a pessimistic culture and generation. And that trend had a starting point in our culture. It began with the, the philosophy of nihilism, starting in universities 80 years ago, popularized by Albert Camus and Jean-Paul Sartre. And that philosophy has worked its way down into popular culture. You can hear it in music. You can see it in cinema. And now our generation is marked by despair and grimness. Hopelessness is the dominant note of our day and time. Whether it's concerning the economy or health pandemics or personal well-being. In case you haven't noticed over the last five years, suicides are soaring. They're off the charts. Fear and worry abound, and pessimism is the order of the day. But as dark as circumstances seem to many today, they were infinitely darker in 61 AD when the apostle Peter wrote his first letter. I hope you have your Bible open to 1 Peter 1. And to be a Christian in Peter's day meant facing unpleasant experiences from the surrounding world. Peter was writing in the era of Nero, the Roman emperor, who violently persecuted Christians at every turn. When Nero became emperor at the age of 16, his first act was to promptly murder his mother. And after persecuting Christians for 15 years, he committed suicide. As Peter writes this letter, he's living in Rome <clears throat> during the height of Nero's persecution. You and I have never known anything personally of such terror. Certainly today, there are believers in places like North Korea and Sudan and Cuba who know this, but I doubt if any of you or I have been called yet to suffer in such a fashion. But even if you were not undergoing persecution, the world was a dark and hopeless place in 61 AD. Peter's contemporary, the Apostle Paul, summed it up in Ephesians 2 when he spoke of the ancient pagan as being without God and therefore without hope in the world. So Peter is writing, as we'll see, he's writing to Christians undergoing persecution to encourage them, but most of all, to give them a solid hope. In Christian history, Peter has been called the Apostle of Hope, John the Apostle of Love, and Paul the Apostle of Faith. I think this is painting with too broad a brush, but it seems to be largely true. I want you to think with me this morning how often Peter wants to talk about hope. I want to lay some groundwork for us because what we're going to find is Peter talks about hope an awful lot even though he's living in the darkest times. Look down the page at chapter 1, verse 13, where Peter says, we are to rest our hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In verse 21, he says, your faith and hope are in God. In chapter 3, verse 15, Peter says, always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for that hope that is in you. Today we're going to peer deeply into that hope and see that our hope is tied to the resurrection of Jesus, and we'll spend some time carefully defining the Christian's hope. Let's seek the Lord's help at this time. O sovereign Lord, since we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth, make us hunger for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. We pray through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Amen. 
through the years, many of you have come to this place because you said to me in the first two or three weeks, you know, Carl, I just, is it too much to ask? I just want to be fed. I've, I've been at other congregations, other churches, and I just wasn't being fed. Now, that's Christianese for those of you who don't speak this language. That means I'm not being taught the Bible. I'm not being fed the Word of God. And so today, for those of you who are, are always hungry, I will tell you we have a three-course banquet today. The first one takes place right here. When you're going, but you need to, if you're going to eat, you need to open your Bible. So you need to, you need to be staring at the text of 1 Peter 1, but then the next course is Sunday school. We will be looking at the, the Christian's benediction in 2 Corinthians 13, but oh, we're just warming up. And then tonight, the dessert, the final course, is we're going to be continuing in our series on the life and ministry of Joshua, looking at this pivotal incident in Numbers 11. So for those of you who are saying, Carl, I just want to be fed spiritually, here is your chance. You need your Bible, though. And so let me remind you, we spent the first two Sundays of First Peter of January and First Peter 1, uh, we looked on January 1st and January 8th at the recipients of Peter's letter. They're called, look at verse 1, they're called pilgrims, sojourners in the world, as is every Christian, since our citizenship is not here. I'm going to remind you that, oh, about every week in First Peter, that don't get too tied to citizenship or nationalism or political parties or patriotism or on and on and on, because... We're not citizens here. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are pilgrims. We are passing through. More exactly, though, look at verse 2. Peter is writing to the elect. Later in chapter 2, verse 9, Peter will call his readers a chosen, elect generation. And he's addressing those, look at verse 4. Those are Ephesians 1, verse 4. He's writing to those who were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. Now, interestingly enough, Peter begins with good news, but the good news that Peter has is, first of all, about the Father. Peter's introduction is not, his focus is not about the Lord Jesus, but on the first person of the Trinity. And notice in verse 2, he wants to put special emphasis on the fact that it was the person of the Father who elected us. Christians differ not so much on whether God chose us, but on the basis of that choice. Did he choose people on the basis of foreseen merit or action on our part? And when Paul speaks of God's election of us in Romans 9, he says definitively that God chose his elect based solely on his sovereign grace, not on the basis of anything you did or thought or said. Now, I want to remind you, as I did a couple of weeks ago, a note on the placement of Peter's discussion of election. Look at verse 2. Peter leads with this. It's right up front. He's not embarrassed about this. And in so doing, I pointed out that he's just like Paul, who whether it's in 1 Corinthians 1 or Ephesians 1 or 1 Thessalonians 1, the apostles aren't hiding this doctrine or ashamed of it. They lead with it. They don't whisper it in back rooms and say, now don't tell anybody about this. This is a delight to the believer. They affirm, whether it's Peter or Paul or even John, they affirm at the beginning of their letters because it's foundational. Election is not a doctrine to fight over or be embarrassed of, but to embrace and worship God for. Now, I want you to look carefully 
And our next context, look at verses 3 through 5. I'm not a great writer, but I can spot other people's literary flaws. I'm really good at spotting other people's flaws. And so I learned these in seventh grade, sentence fragments, no subject verb agreement. By the way, this is one of the ways, and Sandy will hold me up, back me up on this, one of the ways you can always spot an okie is they never get subject verb agreement. If you were to talk to any of our relatives, any of our friends, they would tell you about an event and say, we was doing it. Because that's Okie speak. Never learned. It's not taught in the schools. They're subject verb agreement. But the, the worst of literary flaws, of course, is the dreaded run-on sentence. Now, the most famous run-on sentence in history is found in Ephesians 1 verse 3 through Ephesians 1 14. It's a long run on sentence. And in that sentence, the Apostle Paul starts off with a general topic and then widens out. He just gushes out phrase after phrase to touch on various redemptive themes without stopping for a period or a breath. His sentence in Ephesians 1 is like a, a snowball tumbling downhill, picking up speed as it goes. One classical Greek scholar said of Paul's run on sentence, this is the most monstrous sentence conglomeration ever written in the Greek language. Well, look carefully at 1 Peter 1 verse 3. Because this is a close second for the best run on sentence. In verses 3 through 9, this is all one sentence in the Greek text. And what we're going to do today and God helping us next Sunday is we're going to try to take those clauses. Because what happens is the reader, when you read verse 3 through 9, you start getting overwhelmed and lost in the clauses. And so what we're going to do is we're going to pull them apart, and you're going to have to work. It's sort of like you're saying, Carl, I came here to be fed. Well, if you come to my house to be fed, you're going to have to pick up a knife and a fork. And if you're going to be fed this morning, you're going to have to pick up a Bible and look at and pull apart the clauses. And so look at the first clause and what we're told, because there are all sorts of astounding gospel affirmations being told us clause by clause by clause in verses 3 through 5. The first is, is the good news of the gospel is about the Father who is merciful. Look at verse 3. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. In your case, in my case, God was merciful because he saw you leading a hopeless, dead-end life. In 1 Peter 2, Peter will go on and say, You had not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy. In Titus chapter 3, Peter, Paul agrees and says, Our salvation is attributed solely to the mercy of God. Paul writes, When the kindness and love of God our Savior towards man appeared, not by works of righteousness, but, uh, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. The word translated mercy here in our text is elios. It's a technical Greek word, which means withholding punishment due, and instead giving help. That's what mercy means. That's what God did for you. He withheld the punishment due, and in its place he gave you help. And so when we cry out in our corporate confession of sin, as we just did a few minutes ago, Lord have mercy. We're acknowledging that we're guilty. We're due to justly be punished. 
but were pleading with God to withhold punishment and show mercy. No other attribute of God could have helped us if mercy had refused. As we were by nature, justice condemned us. God's holiness frowned upon us. God's power would crush us. God's truth would echo the threats of God's broken law. It's from the mercy of God that all our hopes begin. Thankfully, as Ephesians 2 says, God is rich in mercy. Peter says in verse 3 that God acted towards us according to his abundant mercy. God's not stingy with his mercy, parceling it out like with an eyedropper. He has abundant mercy. Do you remember what the Lord requires of us? In Micah chapter 6, 8, what does the Lord require of you but to do justly and to love mercy? When the Lord says that's required of us, he's not commanding you to do something he doesn't do. He loves mercy, and he shows it abundantly. Then notice the next little clause in verse 3, where we are told that God has begotten us again. Twenty years ago, I was asked to write a couple of chapters in a book. I think that's the last time I'll go in print including a, a theological article on the doctrine of regeneration. That's what's in view here. Look carefully at verse 3, where Peter says that God, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again. He's given us the new birth. Now, the reason why I was asked to write these chapters in this book is because some modern theologians were teaching and still are teaching aberrantly that we are regenerated by the sacrament of baptism, while others are teaching that there's not even such a thing as regeneration. They would mark verse 3 out of their Bibles. And I had the delightful assignment of putting on paper exactly what the Bible teaches about regeneration. And I summarized it with these six assertions. First of all, regeneration is that act of God that is necessary. By necessary, this is what Jesus is teaching in John 3 when he says, unless, unless one is born again, unless one is regenerated, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nothing, nothing, the sacraments, birth, education, nothing is a substitute for regeneration. It's necessary. The second thing that I asserted about regeneration, it is that act of God that's supernatural. In John chapter 1, we're told the children of God are those who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Regeneration is totally a work of God. It has no natural processes to it. The third thing we must say about being born again, being regenerated, is it's inward. If you knew somebody who yesterday was not born again, but then they were last night, and you saw them now, you couldn't look at them and say, ha, the Lord regenerated you by my calculations at about 11 o'clock last night. No, it's an inward work. How do we know that? Because this is the promise of the new covenant in Ezekiel 36, when the Lord says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. 
I'll take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Regeneration is an inward work. It transforms a man on the inside. The fourth thing that has to be said about this process or this act of being begotten again, it's sovereign. Jesus says in John chapter 3, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you can't tell where it came from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born again of the Spirit. Peter doesn't say, praise God, we made a change in our own hearts. No, look carefully at verse 3. Who regeneration is attributed to? It's attributed to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a sovereign act by the first person of the Trinity. The fifth assertion we should make about regeneration is it's permanent. Peter's going to tell us that later in chapter 1 of 1 Peter 1 and verse 23 when he says, You've been born again not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. Once a man is regenerated, he's a new creation, and he cannot become an old creation again. He is permanently a new creation. Regeneration is permanent. It can't be erased It can't be lost. And then the sixth thing that has to be said about regeneration. Once God regenerates a man, he then gives that man the gift of faith and repentance and a life of obedience. Once again, in Ezekiel 36, the Lord says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Regeneration, the new birth, being born again, will always, 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 in every case, show up by a passion for a holy life, by sanctification, and a love of the means of grace, a love of prayer and the word and sacraments in the Lord's day. And so the good news is, look carefully at verse 3, is the Father has regenerated believers, given them a new heart. And then dig into the next clause in verse 3. We have been regenerated, born again to a living hope. The Christian, according to Peter, is a man who lives with his heavenly home always in full view. (coughs) His outlook is not bound up in this present life and world. For him not to have his face set forward and upward would be decadent and a denial of his very profession of faith. The heir of the world to come is the heir that the regenerate born-again man breathes now in hope. Look at verse 3. Our hope comes through the resurrection. That's the centerpiece and basis of our hope. Because Jesus has died and risen again, and because God has promised us that we shall die and be raised again, just like Jesus, we have a sure hope. Our hope is based on the finished work, the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. No resurrection of Jesus, no hope. If Jesus isn't risen, the apostles are liars and our faith is in vain, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus is not risen, you are still liable to pay for all of your sins and no forgiveness has occurred, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. But we do have a sure and certain expectation of future blessings because Jesus has earned and merited them for us. These blessings will not be bestowed 
without a good reason, but because our Lord Jesus has secured them for us. That's why we sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. The New Testament idea of hope, by the way, is very different from our usage. Two weeks ago, I was talking to a friend on the phone, and he was asking me, we were already thinking about next season, you know, football season. And he asked me what I thought, and I said, I hope the Sooners win the national championship this year. And he responded with, yeah, right. Well, hope in our usage is a desire for some future thing that is uncertain. But that's not how the New Testament uses the word hope. Hope in the New Testament means something that's yet future, but certain. Did you hear that? In the New Testament, hope is something that's yet future, but certain. And so our hope as believers is a defined hope. It's not a nebulous hope. Hope could be translated better as utter certainty of something future. This hope, Peter will tell us in 1 Peter 3, this hope is something that a Christian can explain, articulate, and defend. The believer is not ignorant of the very foundations upon which he stands. This hope, we'll find out as we dig into 1 Peter, this hope is something that the believer is drawn entirely from Scripture. This hope rests in, uh, completely on Christ. This hope is the hope of the resurrection. And this hope is the prospect of the erasure of all sin, pain, and tears. There's more. Look at verse 3 and 4. We're told that we have been regenerated and we've now come in possession of an inheritance. I know about inheritances. Sixteen years ago, my secretary stuck her head around the corner, and because she's used to my friends, she said, I don't know if this is a prank or not, but this lady on the phone sounds legit. Well, my friends have a way of doing that as well. And she said that she's from this law firm in Oklahoma. I thought, that'd be an odd prank to be pulling, and so I said, let me, let me talk to her. So I get on the phone, and it was a lady from an oil and gas company. And she said, Carl, we've been trying to track you down, and we finally did, and we're trying to get a hold of five of you, you, your brother, and your sister, and your two cousins, one of whom at that time was a guest of the state in a correctional facility. But <clears throat> this woman said, I'm so glad to get a hold of you. Could you help me get a hold of your, your two cousins and your brother and sister? I said, what's this about? And she said, your grandfather, Robbins, left you an inheritance. I thought... I like the sound of this phone call. And she said, yeah, he, when he sold his farm, he retained the mineral rights and he willed them to his grandchildren, of which you're one of. She said, it'll be split five ways. And she said, he, you have one-fifth of all of the oil and gas rights under his farm. And I started thinking, Jed Clampett, here I am. And so I was getting excited about this inheritance. I went home and told Sandy about it, and, and she kind of thought, well, knowing your family, I doubt if there's much there. Oh, no, you go ahead and go down to the Ford dealership and buy a new pickup right now, and let's start shopping in a much better neighborhood for much better neighbors than we have. So I called the 
lady back and I said, what, what kind of money are we talking about here? And she said, well, you just never know. It depends on what sort of field is under the lamp. When will I know? Oh, probably eight to nine months. Okay. So my cousins in Oklahoma started calling me up. Carl, how much is this going to be? And so sure enough, we were all excited. And that day came nine months later when the check came in the mail. $19.23. That was my inheritance from my granddad. Well, look carefully at your inheritance. And it's not even worthy for me to use the word inheritance that I received in the same sentence with this. In verses 3 and 4, we're told that he's begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Now, let me tell you something about an inheritance in biblical terminology. It's all of grace. Kids, let me tell you this in your family. Remember, it's all mom and dad's money. Mom and dad can leave their wealth to whomever they choose. They can leave it to the neighbor kid who does a good job mowing their lawn if they want. So anything you receive by an inheritance is by grace and it's by the death of someone. Did you hear that? An inheritance is by grace, and it's by the death of someone. Look at verse 3. Peter says, The inheritance you received at regeneration is by the death and resurrection of Jesus. <clears throat> and Peter gives several modifiers in verse 4 to describe that inheritance. Look at some of those modifiers in verse 4. It's incorruptible, meaning it's exempt from corruption. It's not like that piece of fruit in the back of the refrigerator you forgot about and then discover three weeks later brown and smelly and fuzzy and moldy and ruined. He says your inheritance is undefiled. No moral evil can invade it, cannot be stained, no pollution. He says, your inheritance is unfading. It will never be anything except bright, not subject to decay. The passing of time will not diminish its existence. Peter says, it's reserved. It's waiting for you. It will not accidentally be given to someone else. Let me be very blunt here. Our hope, fellow believer, is not in the American dream or our retirement account Look at our hope there in verse 4. Our hope is in heaven. It's reserved. It cannot lose its value. You may envy those whose financial future seems secure because of their birth. Sons of a wealthy family, they're heirs of a fortune. But Peter has heard Jesus teach. When Peter's writing these words, he's thinking of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels when he speaks of that better treasure stored up in heaven, where there are no moths to eat our glorious robes, no rust to corrode our crowns of gold, no thieves can break in and steal. But there's another fascinating word that Peter uses to describe our inheritance. In verse 5, he says, This inheritance is ready. Upon death or the second coming, your inheritance will be revealed. But the Lord has it prepared. Now it's ready. Nothing else needs to be added. No final touches. It's ready. It's waiting for you. Israel had an inheritance. The land. 
The ideal was that every Israelite would sit under their own fig tree and enjoy the fruit of the vine, we are told in 1 Kings 4. But this inheritance was never secure, never secure from invaders, never secure from famine, never secure from a civil war. But what Peter is trying to teach you and I is the spiritual, heavenly character of our inheritance. Decay and entropy, part of the fallen world, cannot get to our inheritance. Well, notice the next clause in verse 5. He speaks to the believer. The born-again believer who has an inheritance is someone who's being kept. Now, the word kept is a fascinating term in verse 5. He says, of you, you are kept by the power of God. The term kept is a military term. Uh, it's a present participle. It means that it means to constantly and carefully watch a fort for any signs of attack. If you go to Washington, D.C., and you see the tomb of the unknown soldier, you'll notice it's closely guarded by armed guards 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Nothing takes them off duty. In fact, there are webcams where you can watch them. And the most fascinating thing is to watch these men who are guarding the tomb of the unknown soldier on a rainy day when they are standing there and it, it, it might as well be 72 degrees and sunny. They're unmoved. Or when a snowstorm or a sleet storm is coming down or even when hurricanes have blown up through that part of the world, they don't move. They shift, change every few hours, but they're always on guard. That's the term that's being used here in verse 5. The apostle Peter is saying, your enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil can pour in their attacks, but they will all be fought off because your inheritance is being carefully guarded in heaven. And we are being carefully guarded here and now. Now notice what is keeping us. Look at verse 5, and this is where the text turns ultra-theocentric. We are told that you are kept by the power of God, the omnipotent power of God. Now, omnipotence, for those of you who don't know, it means all-powerful, almighty. If you listen to Handel's Hallelujah Chorus, it's the most repeated line is, Hallelujah, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And of course, Scripture everywhere teaches God's omnipotent power. Job says to God, I know that you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. When Mary is confused about how she can be pregnant without the aid of a man in Luke 1, the angel Gabriel tells her God is omnipotent. He says, nothing will be impossible with God. And by the way, this, stare at verse 5. 1 Peter 1.5 is one of a thousand texts that demonstrate why it's so important to have a firm grasp on the attributes of God. God has the power, we'll find in 2 Peter 2, to deliver you out of temptation. He has, we're told in Ephesians 6, the power to supply you with armor to withstand the enemy. There is, this is nothing less, when you look at verse 5, and we're told that we're being kept by the power of God. This is nothing less than the security of the believer. If God is for you, who can be against you? You're held in God's powerful hand and cannot be plucked out. You're like Daniel in the lion's den when God shuts the lion's mouth so that Daniel's not hurt. This is why Jude can assert that God is able to keep you from stumbling. This is why Paul can assert in Romans 8 
that nothing can separate the believer from God. And this is why Paul can write in Philippians 1, He who began a good work in you will perfect it. How? By his power. So what's at stake here? Look at verse 5. Those of you who think, I can be saved yesterday and lost tomorrow. What's at stake here? Nothing less than the truthfulness of God. Is his word accurate or not? Has Christ prepared a mansion for someone that he'll have to tear down? Of course not. He's omnipotent. He can keep his born-again elect children. You'll be kept because of the immutability of God's decree of election. When he chose you before the foundation of the world, he will not change his mind. You'll be kept because Christ is interceding for you moment by moment. You'll be kept because of the abiding work of the indwelling Holy Spirit. How do we apply this word to us? This is one of those sharp antitheses that divides men. Lost men rarely, if ever, think of the eternal world. What Peter has been doing is he's been talking about your inheritance, heavenly things, and so the believer is getting stirred up and they're, they're delighted to once again be reminded of what it is they will receive and where it is they're going. The believer is delighted to have this discussion. The lost man, if you start talking about heaven, about all he's got are things that are carnal and foolish. I've been reminded of that again this week. With the death of David Crosby, you do know who David Crosby is, right? Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. I'll sing some of the songs for you later if you'd like. And what I've, I've heard over and over again is, David Crosby is singing and playing guitar in heaven. Isn't it fascinating that the world never speaks of someone going to hell? Well, the world, all it can think of are things that are carnal. And so the best they can think of in terms of hope is, is our heroes, they're playing golf or gardening or playing guitar with their other friends. The world, though, never talks about the hope that is spoken of in verses 3 through 5. But this is the sharp distinction. The believer does so. The believer looks forward with great expectancy to their promised inheritance. Worship, service, and most of all, unbroken communion with the triune God. Unbelievers, you see, have no hope. Nothing to look forward to except the wrath of God and the judgment of God. My unbelieving friend, you can have a legitimate hope today. You can have a living hope, a hope that is, that is unfading. If you'll but plead with the risen Christ to give you a new heart and fit you for an eternal inheritance. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that you'd replace our pessimism and our hopelessness with joyful hope. And we ask that you'd remind us frequently, especially as we study this book, you'd remind us frequently that you have a glorious inheritance reserved for us and that you, by your mighty power, will keep us and bring us home to glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.